In 2019, Keith Ranieri, the leader of Nexium and the founder of Executive Success Programs, was found guilty of sex trafficking, forced labor conspiracy, and racketeering. Under a name that is theorized to stand for Nexium, a type of contract used in the Roman Republic, where a person agrees to offer their body as collateral for a loan, women were groomed, trafficked, branded, and ultimately assaulted. Today, we'll see how some of the brightest and most intuitive women could be dragged so far into the depths of what was believed to be a program that will help them reach their full potential, and how they will use the tools set up to work against them to bring a whole organization down. This is the story of the women of Nexium. Detective Unit, I have a serious question, and also the most comic relief that you will get during this video. Have you ever played with slime as a child? You know, like, you stick it onto the wall, onto the wallpaper, that thing is gone. Your whole household interior is just simply ruined. Have you ever played with it? You know what it is? Or are you normal? That is truly my question here, and this is a direct attack at my younger brother. God, that thing was disgusting. How... Why do we give kids little slime balls, and we're like, yeah, just throw it, just throw it at the freaking mirror, just throw it. It's totally not gonna be the yuckiest freaking thing to get off of anything that it sticks to. Why Why is slime something that kids play with? Is it... Where, where does it come from? I'm not gonna look up history of slime. Because today we are going to be talking about a figure that is the human version of slime. There are so many parts in this research in the past couple of days where I have had to get up and just walk into a shower. Just genuinely, I had to have a shower so many at so many points during this research. This is actually insane. And on top of that, this research hasn't even been written by me. That's why we're going to have a different storytelling today. But before all of that, I have to give a couple of trigger warnings as to why I would actually physically be sick and get up into the shower and be like, I need a break, I actually need a break. Because it is one of probably the most interesting stories I have ever researched and read and had somebody research for me. But it is sickening. It is heavy. It is heavy as hell. The topics we're going to be talking about today deal with trafficking, grooming, rape, branding, and also something that is really understated, eating disorders. If you have ever had an eating disorder, I'm just gonna say this was also hard to watch and listen to. So if these are the topics that you just can't cope with today, if this is something that will be triggering to you, I would just suggest getting out of this video or just making small breaks in between as you listen to this story, because this gets pretty insane pretty quickly. And all of these topics are just kind of connected together because they lead to the charges against the individual, but it just gets grimmer every second as you listen to it. Now, on to the topic of why this story will flow and why I got really hooked. I had a researcher on this one, and this person actually is somebody that watches the channel, and they have reached out to me, and they're a humble soul that didn't want to plug anything, anything of their own let's say that. So, Jenny, if you want to make yourself known in the comments, I'm not gonna share your full details. However, she had told me of a cause that is close to her heart, so I'm just going to plug that for her. And if you, by the end of the story, feel like this is amazing storytelling, kudos to Jeannie, and also want to do a good deed today, I would advise checking class kids. 
Most of the Americans will be familiar with the story of Polly Klaas, who was kidnapped on October the 1st, 1993, and then subsequently murdered, actually strangled to death. After her death, Mark Klaas, her dad, gave up his business in order to campaign for child safety. This would be when he would found Klaas Kids, and this is the organization, the foundation that has been founded by the Klaas parents that promotes prevention programs for at-risk youth, stronger sentencing for violent criminals, and governmental accountability and responsibility. Donating to this cause of Jeannie's Choice would just mean that you would provide a class family with further opportunities to counsel and advise different victim families and families of kidnapped children. The Polly's dad, Polly's dad sits on different advisory boards as well and has quite of an influence since the 19th, since this foundation had been founded. And it's just like, also, even if you don't have the money to donate, even if you don't want to, the website is such a good source for even just the basic advice of what to do when your child is missing, which is so, so crucial. I feel like we have spoken about this when I covered Matty's case, Louise Woodward, the nanny that possibly, potentially, allegedly killed little many uh, little Matty Epen and we have discussed how like the foundation that the Epen parents have also created just provides such a good source for the information that you would not be able to otherwise found just because these parents were already in those shoes so if by the end of this you feel inclined to donate or even right now or just check the website like it's such a beautiful dedication to a cause based off of a real and really tragic story. But now for our story of the day, before we even go into Kifraniri's background and then find out how Nexium came about, the women of Nexium, and how they will technically use the tools that Keith thought will go into his favor to bring the organization down, we have to actually talk about the charges, the charges that I have mentioned in the intro, and just define them. Because you don't get to be convicted as a cult leader unless you actually majorly fuck up, or unless you are that type of person like with Jonestown, etc., where the whole goal is for people to pass on to a different world, basically to commit mass suicide. So Kiev had to be a special kind of evil. That actually was convicted because, well, let's first talk about trafficking and racketeering. The definition of trafficking involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of labor or commercial sex act. And the most important word here is coercion, because most cults use coercion in some form. The UK has laws against coercion, but the US doesn't, which you would think one country that has so many cults going on, or what ends up being defined as cults within the public, would, but they do not. Coercion is persuading someone to do something by using force or threat. When it comes to cults, coercion is a little different, because they don't always use force or threat. Common tactics within cults, and something that you will hear about in this story multiple times, would be guilt-tripping, making emotional threats, emotional blackmail. So think of this. Compel, constrain, force, and oblige. For example, you can isolate somebody from their friends and family, deprive them of their basic needs, like food and sleep, monitoring, 
their time, monitoring them via online means, which is something that will be quite different when it comes to Nexium, because his recruits wouldn't always be in the same place, and a lot of times they would just be living their own lives and kind of then getting more and more immersed. They would still be available on social media. They would actually be using social media continuously in order to promote Nexium's work. So there were always ways out, however, they would choose not to leave because of coercion. Now, when it comes to trafficking, the three most common types of human trafficking are sex trafficking, forced labor, and debt bondage. Interestingly, Kiefer Neary was convicted of all three. So that means that he trafficked people, in this case women, for sex, labor, and debt. Essentially, they would owe him, quote-unquote, so they'd have to do whatever he needed. The labor and debt are similar, but not the same. When you traffic someone to labor, they are then made to, usually by coercion, fulfill whatever job you need, such as being your maid. When you traffic someone for debt, you don't need to use the coercion. They already owe you, so they have to work for you. The one charge that we are yet to speak about is racketeering, and this is something you do illegally and repeatedly in order to make a profit often through threat or use of violence. But to be convicted, you have to commit several crimes over several years. There are 27 federal crimes and 8 state ones that qualify. Federal racketeering crimes include charges committed using extortion and coercion, not just physical violence. In Ranieri's case, he didn't use threats or violence. He used first coercion and then the rest of his Nexium members to enforce and continue the crimes. The crimes committed by the women in the society under him were not only done in his name, but it was proven it was at his direction. Those women were brought by coercion to the area he lived, trafficked, groomed to have sex with him, sex trafficked across state lines, one of those pesky federal charges, made to give collateral, which would be released if they were not branded, blackmail, another federal charge, then made to seduce him, also by force of collateral, being released. So while what he did throughout the company Nexium encompassed many crimes, the society called DOS had all free. In 2017, an exclusive, highly secret women's society within the organization called Dominus Obsequius Sororium, or DOS, which stands for a Latin phrase roughly translated as Lord over the obedient female companions, is what will finally spark the downfall of Nexium. Now, the reason why Nexium hadn't been exposed by these women until 2017, even though it had actually been founded in the late 90s, is because of one last thing we have to define today, and that is a collateral. So, collateral is something pledged in security to be forfeited in default. So, you might be familiar with something like car loans, for example, where the car is the collateral, and if you default on the loan, they take your car. But if that collateral happens to be the title to your house, a compromising video you made with your husband, nude photos they had you take, then collateral means something else entirely. And in Nexium, one collateral will lead to another, and you will have to give monthly collaterals so that you're always living in fear. It will be released if you don't toe the line. We're gonna have the long of it for DOS, for the society that will eventually bring Keith Raniere down. But first, we have to talk about the man himself. 
how he started and ultimately who he took down with him. Keith Raniere was born on August the 26th, 1960, in Brooklyn, New York. His parents were called James and Vera. Now, his dad was an insurance salesman, and his mom was a ballroom dance instructor. His parents would end up getting divorced when he was eight years old, and his dad would publicly say that Keith's mom was an alcoholic. I'll give it to Keith. When you look at his childhood pictures, he seems like a cute child at first, and then you think like... You know, your head is gonna grow into your body, like, everything is gonna be proportionate, like, his eyes are gonna grow into his head, and that just doesn't happen. There's something so creepy about this man's eyes, and I can't actually define it. Like, he's not cross-eyed, they're not too small, they're not too big, they're not even too close together. It's just eerie. There's something just in this man's eyes that is so, so fucking unsettling. Somebody else put it into words better than me that isn't even in the script. I just looked at the pictures of this cute child. I was like, how? How did that turn into this? The best way to describe the rest of Keith Raniere's childhood, the exact moment when he stopped looking cute, would be defined by lies. And that would set the precedent for the future and really why so many people believed him when they actually joined Nexium. So, Let's just get that first out of the way. He would say that he could speak in full sentences at one year old, could read at two, and he had an understanding of quantum physics and computers by age four. He said he was a double concert pianist, an East Coast judo champion, had undergrad degrees in math, physics, and biology. His biggest boast, however, was that he was one of the three smartest people on the planet with an IQ of 240, and that he had been recognized in the Guinness Book of World Records for this. So, of course, I looked up immediately the next line, because Jeannie, I was like, I know, she's gonna know, I'm going to fact-check this. I need to fact-check this information. So, of course, next line in Jeannie's script is, okay, let's start with that last one. One year, 1989, only in Australia, it was printed that after taking the Hofflin test, Keith had a measured IQ of 240. Sounds legit so far. It was only printed in this one edition one year because no one had heard of the Hofflin test. Well, it was an IQ test, however, it was taken at home, where no one could monitor the individual to make sure they weren't using computers for the equations. The very next year, the highest IQ was retired from Guinness because the equations had already been printed and sold in other publications. And with the advent of personal computers, the test wasn't valid anymore. On top of that, some old versions of the Nexium website would also tell people that Keith had taught himself high school math in a day at the age of 12. Keith Ranieri might have been smart. He was at a young age labeled as gifted, which fed into his huge freaky ego. But none of the information that I have just told you is true. At his trial, they showed his college transcript where he attended the Rensselaer Polytechnic College, however you pronounce it, and he had 2.9 grade, which is basically a C average for people over here. 
He was on academic probation and actually received Fs in quantum physics. Also, he was a judo champion in his youth, but not the entire East Coast. And he could play piano. You actually hear it if you watch, I think it was The Vow that I have watched, where he actually plays the piano and it's super eerie. However, he was not a concert pianist. But what he was really good at was selling himself. Back to where we left it off when it comes to his actual childhood and sort of like life at home. The Ranieris would buy a home in Southern Knolls in January of 1967, and this would be according to the county records in the local area. And by the time that Keith was eight, as I mentioned, James was still an advertising exec, but his mom, Vera, who was a dance instructor, at this point would separate from his dad and they would later divorce. For the next five years, Keith would care for his mother because of her health, but also it was said because of her growing alcoholic issues. In the court documents, the lawyers would say that Keith spent little time pursuing many of the carefree pleasures some children find in childhood because of his mom, and we should really feel super sorry for him, which, yes, in this part of his life, you can feel some sort of sympathy for Keith. Yes, one time in his life where you will able, be able to, like, actually be like, oh, that's actually sad. But then listen to the rest of the story, because once you do, you're gonna be like, boohoo, so many children have had much worse lives, much worse childhoods that Kiefer Neary did. I wasn't there personally, I can't tell you how bad it was taking care of his mom when he could have been doing whatever else in this world. However, however, there are many people who go for much worse and don't become Kiefer Neary. So just pin that into your, into your head. Because he didn't have the worst childhood that you have ever heard a criminal have. I just, again, my opinion, but at this point, some sympathy, some sort of empathy can be given to Kiefer Neary, and it will soon fizzle out completely. Don't you worry about that. When it comes to his school, again, Keith would excel as a student. He will complete ninth grade at the Southern High School and transfer to Rockland County Day School for the 10th and 11th grades. And then he would be accepted to the prestigious Rensselaer, it sounds French, I can't do it, Polytechnic Institute in 1977. At this point, he would be praised by his headmasters for his school records, and something that I found interesting is that they would add that he was probably as well prepared for college academically, socially, and emotionally. And here we are still talking about the period of life when he is affected by his mom's health and her alcoholism, and he still is living in the conditions that we have just spoken about. And then at the age of 17, despite of him taking care of his mother, Keith starts classes at RPI. Let's just shorten it. I can't pronounce it. Let's just shorten it. And he started taking high-level math and science classes. Now, just before returning to college for his sophomore year in 78, he would be celebrating his 18th birthday. And he turned his 18th birthday celebration into a tribute to his mother. 
For what she endured and for giving Ranieri the opportunities that he had is what would be later stated in court documents. That would turn out to be the last time that he would see his mom alive in their home. His mom died that December, a week before final exams. Now, the reason why I have focused on digging this information up is actually twofold. So, I was looking to explain to myself the psychology of Kiefer Neary and how the one person like that we have just met, somebody exaggerating, somebody good at selling himself, how does it turn just completely evil and manipulative whether there was a trigger. And I would say that his mom's death definitely was one here. I feel like inevitably, at any stage of somebody's life, if your mom was to pass away, regardless of the relationship that you have with her, but especially if you're dependent on this person for at least a couple of years solely on that parent, on that parental figure, that would have led to emotional distress, emotional trauma, that I don't think or have seen evidence that Kiefer Neary ever dealt with in a healthy way. Now you have his 18th birthday, and when you learn about Nexium, you will see that Kiefer Neary has had a fixation about his birthdays, and I really tried to dig up this information in order to explain that to myself, because yes, huge ego. Of course, he wants everybody to celebrate him, everybody to commemorate him. However, this then offers us another avenue that maybe, in the beginning at least, when it came to Nexium and when it came to V-Weeks, as we are going to be speaking about, and Keith's birthday is being about commemorating himself, the full week of celebration, and everything being dedicated to him. What if in the beginning, at least, this was due to his 18th birthday and the whole dedication, commemoration to somebody. And it might have started with it being about commemorating his mother's death. It might have started off with that in the back of his mind. And then it might have eventually just transferred to everything being just about him. Let me know what you think once you hear the rest of the story, because I feel like without the information, without the background on his childhood and this 18th birthday, you will go into it feeling like this is just somebody feeding his ego, and this is just somebody who wants people to celebrate him and worship him at all times, and it's disgusting, it's disturbing. But then when I actually read this paragraph, I thought, but maybe this is something that had actually left an imprint. And at the beginning, at least, at least, it was to do with him reliving it, with him trying to process his mother's death in a way. And then I feel like inevitably, after a couple of years, it truly only became about him. Going back into our timeline, at this point, he finally leaves school and he starts selling insurance like his dad. But this would be the time when MLM companies like Mway had just started. So, Keith would start a similar multi-level marketing company that was called Consumer Byline in the year 1990. And this company actually for his first business and just him not really having business kind of knowledge was quite successful. 
If you're not familiar with MLMs, essentially, once you sign up, the way you make money is to sign more people up under you. Then they sign up more people and so on. But you don't get to make the money until you sign up others. And then you make money off of everybody that they sign up. It's also sometimes called a pyramid scheme. And Consumer Byline did just that. They signed up people, they would pay a monthly membership fee, which would give them access to a catalog of household products at a reduced price. You could only make money, however, by signing others up. And a lot of these businesses were shut down, and Keefe's was no exception. By year 1993, they were being investigated by 25 separate states for bad business practices. They were shut down by the Attorney General of New York and had to pay a $40,000 fine. But Keefe had already made money, and he had something more important. He had contacts and a girlfriend named Tony Natalie, who went into business with him selling vitamins after consumer byline went under. Here I just pause to kind of give you the insight as somebody who had watched most shows that have been created on Nexium, so I would recommend The Bow. Um, I don't know if it's on the US Netflix anymore, I have found it online somewhere, and then also the show called Seduced that is produced by Stars. So first of all, when I heard Stars, I was like, mm, this is crappy crap, but it actually was quite well done. Both of them basically are done from different angles, so we'll speak about that in further details, but The Bow has a lot of footage, like insane amount of footage, both on Kefraniri's side and since consumer byline and also when it came to Nexium and then when it came to people bringing him down. But the footage that I have seen, first things first, when women say that they love men in suits, they sure as fuck do not mean young Kefraniri in a suit. Like, look at him. He's like chubby bohemian. Like, what is going on? What is the hair parting? What, what is this board, this representation? N nothing. Nothing is working physically. <laughs> it never will, because he's a man. Anyways, something else to point out before speaking a bit about his personal life and Tony Natalie and the beginnings of Nexium, here a pattern also starts showing up. And this is what you learn when you listen to the interviews done by Tony Natalie, his ex-girlfriend. Because there are videos of him from these days in the WoW, and you see how he challenges people under him. So, from what I understood, these videos are done for marketing purposes. So, it's literally just them showing people around in, like, their little booths, making calls and selling products, and it's all, like, to hype you up, to sign more people up. And then Tony Natalie shows up and has a proper, like, interview for the show, and she says, like, especially he would challenge women. And this is what kind of attracted her at the time, because she would join, and then... After, like, 15 minutes, I feel like he pulled her in and asked her, like, do you want to quit? Like, what's going on? Like, why are you not, like, motivated? And that kind of pushed her further towards her goals and targets and all of that, because, of course, they had to sign people up in order to make money. In Tony's case, he would explain to her, people are going to have a job because of you. And this is how she was hooked. But to me, once again you need to pin this in your head because it's literally the premise for everything that is to come. Because Nexium on the surface, would also be a pyramid scheme. 
just a very sinister one from how he used to operate when it comes to consumer byline. Now, as I mentioned, this business goes bust, the New York Attorney General files a civil suit against him and Keith would settle for $40,000, out of which he only paid $9,000 and he said he can't pay the rest, even though he also said he was worth $50 million, so I don't really know how that tracks. But a year later, he creates another MLM kind of company called National Health Network, which would sell vitamins. And he and his then-girlfriend, Tony Natalie, set up a health food shop in Clifton Park, New York. Here is where myself and also Jeannie see the first silent drop in the bucket. According to many articles and a book that's called Don't Call It a Cult, Tony starts seeing a therapist. And I'm using that term very, very loosely. This woman was a psychiatric nurse, and she trained in hypnosis. She had also studied NLP, which stands for Neuro Linguistic Program. And stick a pin in this, because we are gonna come back to it. She asked this woman, so Tony asks her therapist, called Nancy Saltzman, to help her with her boyfriend issues. And she said he had grandiose ideas, and his hours at work are starting to become erratic. After fully describing Keith, Nancy said, Okay, I can help you with that. He sounds like a sociopath to me, based off of my knowledge, based off of my degree. He sounds like a sociopath. Now, hearing that, you would think, Okay, she's gonna advise Tony how to leave this relationship. She will do anything to really help this woman. The last thing you would think is that the therapist, Nancy, is going to actually meet up with Keith and start an organization with him. But that is exactly what will happen. In the script, Ginny mentions something that actually might be a really valid reason here, and that is that Nancy might have thought she can fix Keith. Maybe she thought, like, if I just meet up with him, I'm gonna try to figure it out. Maybe it was just, like, a challenge for her as this quote-unquote therapist. But Tony would say that Nancy spent four hours talking to Keith, and when she came out, her eyes were glazed over, and she just said, you don't know who he is. Tony said, there goes another one. Because at this point, Tony was used to Keith working his weird magic on people, where within a few minutes, he could cut to their core, find their innermost thoughts and fears, and use it all to his advantage. It sounds weird, it sounds unreasonable, it sounds like magic, but other sociopaths like Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, were known to be extremely intelligent, captivating, and wholly charismatic. And others would just not be able to see through it. But Keith learned something in those four hours, something very important. Nancy was just what he needed. She would control the people he needed to control. Before speaking of how these two minds collided, met up for four hours, and decided to get into business together, and then eventually that business would turn into what we now know to be Nexium. Let us just speak about this NLP and how did Nancy actually fit his business? Because he had an MLM, she was a qualified psychiatric nurse and apparently was engaged in something that is called Neuro Linguistic Program. So, this will become essential because Nancy will be responsible for the videotapes, the teaching, everything to do with trying to get these 
women and like other Nexium members, all of them, to stay. So Nancy is listed in the nurses database as having a nursing license in the state of New York between 83 and it expired in 2019. And she did have experience in hypnosis and NLP. Like Keith, however, she is self-proclaimed. I feel like in the vow they have said she is number two NLP specialist. Or that is what she said to people. Again, there's no like agenda. NLP is basically bullshit. So, NLP, Neuro Linguistic Program, in its simplest terms, is pseudoscience that focuses on nonverbal communication. So, it focuses on how words are said, what infliction they're given, how the person is receiving the words, the person's body language during the exchange, and partially, yes, this is used in, like, police interrogation. So, if you have ever watched an interrogation where the officer tries to mirror the suspect's body language, how they sit, if they lean forward, etc., well, NLP-trained individuals also say things in a certain way, almost melodic. Like, the entire purpose is to get the other person into a state of mind where they're more susceptible to suggestion. Now, if you were to be in an interrogation and the detective starts mirroring your body language, it might not make you confess. However, it will foster trust. And there are many unscrupulous NLP practitioners, including Nancy Salzman. The reason for this is that because if someone, a trained therapist with your good intentions, is using NLP on you, it's to help. And they're being monitored. Women like Nancy, well she will be Keith's single greatest weapon. He couldn't have become who he did or have had the power and the access like he did without first securing her. Incidentally, Keith would get Nancy to sign her own NDA, non-disclosure agreement, in that first meeting. This is something that will become practice for both of them, really, when it came to Nexium. But Everybody in this story, including me, everybody that has ever researched, kind of wishes out of all of the footage that we have gotten, because there's so many pointless, like, footage tapes, just keep rambling about his views on women and life and sex, so much about sex, and I will play some of them because they're the most disturbing ones. And we don't have the crucial part, like, these four-hour meeting minutes, basically, is what we kind of lack. And it's one of those things where even I would be like, okay, I would pay a fiver just to see, like, how those two minds collided. What was said in that room? Like, yeah, I would never bid on anything more than a fiver, but a fiver is and would have been my top offer here. Because we know that Nancy was good at influencing others to do whatever she wanted, and she originally trained in hypnosis. This is why she would be good at that. However, two of the single best weapons any grower cult leader needs in his arsenal is exactly this, what she would offer, hypnosis and NLP. And Keith, on the other side, would have experience when it comes to sales and would know, most importantly, how to sell himself. Tony would leave Keith later, and we are going to talk about that, but she would be the one bringing Nancy into his circle. And here I have to make a personal note after having watched interviews with Tony in The Vow, I believe. Tony could only have saved herself from Keith without any 
lasting consequences. There's still consequences, I bet. Like, there's still probably trauma. But then when you hear the stories that come out of this, I believe personally, and you let me know how you feel by the end of the story, that she could only eventually leave him before Nexium was what it had become because of Nancy. Because Keith's focus had shifted and he started having bigger plans. The beginnings of Nexium would start with Keith's manipulation. Keith liked to manipulate girls and women. More than that, he was a misogynist with a huge ego and major influencing skills, who believed he should be able to have any girl or woman, and the one he was currently professing love to should be fine with it. Except for a couple of rare examples. It worked. I keep saying girls, and I will come to that part of the story as well. But in July 1998, Keith and Nancy started Executive Success Programs, or ESPs which were labeled as self-help seminars that were meant for everyone, but they pushed it to the best of the best. They wanted the most influential people signed up. This was at the height of self-help seminars, and this is probably why it also worked the way it did. This was before many people had access to personal computers, access to the web, other than dial-up, so you had to go to the actual physical places. This played right into Keith's plan, because he said Nancy would be perfect to learn his new plan and duplicate it. He was a salesman at heart, so at the end, they were always selling you more. So the year is 1998. Nancy incorporated in Delaware the company that launched executive success programs and applied for patents on Ranieri's behavior modification technology. Herself and Keith agreed that he would get a share of the profits at some point. The company is also now started to become known as Nexium, and classes are offered in Albany, Manhattan, Seattle, Boston, and even several cities in Mexico, with further plans for expansion. In August, in a Squat Brown office complex near the Albany airport, 50 entrepreneurs and bankers would sit in overstuffed couches, discussing words like value and ethics. Days would begin at 8 a.m. with the ESP hand clap. This is similar to using a gavel to open a court hearing. Students would then go through sessions on money, face of the universe, control, freedom and surrender, and more. They would learn jargon that didn't really exist in business lingo at the time, but it did in Nancy and Keith's lingo, like parasites, and those would be the people who suffer, creating problems where none exist and craving attention. And then there would be suppressives, who see good but want to destroy it. So a person who criticizes executive success is showing suppressive behavior. It's basically that type of thing where you can't win because everything is on you. Every emotion that you feel, every action that you do, everything is on you. It's never anybody else's fault, which will also become prevalent if you listen to any interviews and once you learn about these women. In money, for example, the students are taught that every dollar spent represents a portion of effort, and that Keith, who would call himself the vanguard here, identified the concept of giving and taking with integrity. So him, as a coach, would urge students to take each session several times at a cost of several thousand dollars, and to think of each dollar spent as a worthwhile representation of that effort. 
In the core pieces of the program, known as Exploration of Meaning, or EMs, teachers would plumb students' beliefs and backgrounds, looking for emotional patterns. People are encouraged to reveal a negative habit, describe how it benefits survival, and pledge to replace it with a new one. The vow and seduced both do a really good job in terms of just showing you even the forms that are filled up by these people, where they ask you, like, what is the most negative experience that you have had in your life? This is like an opening questionnaire that you then, in the first couple of hours, hand over to the people. And they show you people sitting in front of Nancy, who by this point, obviously, is a qualified nurse in this area, opening up. And you see that they are taking that personal information at this stage, and on top of that, the personal information is shared verbally in front of everybody seated. So they're immediately vulnerable, sharing most personal details about their life, and most often, more often than not, really, on camera. Apart from those questionnaires, in the first couple of sessions, of course, you would have to sign your own NDAs. Students would need to sign those and vow never to talk about what they learn. If they were to violate it, they're compromising inner honesty and integrity. So, in August that year, Ranieri would sue a woman for, well, the suit would claim divulging information. And when a Forbes reporter asked to audit a session, the group's lawyer would present a three-page confidentiality agreement forbidding the magazine to write about virtually anything seen or heard at the event. The reporter declined and later was allowed to make a brief visit to the Albany site. This would be the early days, however. There are so many things that are still to develop. So, in my opinion, from my research and also Jeannie's research, during this time, it is truly about developing these programs, trying to get these people to commit, to pay extortionate amount of money in order to just even come to these events, to these programs, to get involved into ESPs. And one of the methods that they used was also adding what Keith would call his human behavior equation. For that, he was calling on Iron Rand, Amway, even Scientology, which you will also see later. Keith and Nancy would write a curriculum together, and they had modules or videos the people in the seminar had to watch. After the first couple, Keith didn't even teach them anymore. If you were in one of the ESP classes, the chances are you'd be watching videos of Nancy, using NLP in every word she spoke, teaching you how to let go and have more. Not only that, but when they started the umbrella company Nexium two years later, Keith would not be on the business incorporation paperwork either. He was afraid of what had happened with Consumer Byline, and his entire board of directors would be women. Now, that, on the surface, superficially, sounds great. However, all of those women were living with him in his Clifton Park townhouse, just outside Albany. Some lived in the adjoining townhouses, but it is said that all of them were sleeping with him. So, while ESP recruited the best and brightest to be trainers, walked the new people through the videos and the rules, where was Keith? It is alleged that he stayed up all night walking around Clifton Park with one woman or another, playing volleyball at the Clifton Rec Center, and during the day, he would nap with a virtual cadre of women cleaning the house, making his meals, and doing his admin work. 
Just to try to describe the dynamic going on here, at this point, Keith would be sleeping with a woman called Karen, Pam, and also he was still seeing Tony and Natalie. They would all be sleeping with him and living together in what Jeannie could only describe as sister-wives sort of setup, which is a very niche reference, I must admit. I had to Google that. I had no idea what the hell she was on about. But Karen thought that she was his only girlfriend. Tony actually lived in a house with her son, so she didn't see all of this weird situation going on at first. But Pam had met Keith on a ski slope and started following him. Out of all of them, it seemed like Pam was actually his first girlfriend, and the one he told everything to. Even about the other women that he was having sex with and how she was supposed to make them feel okay, even welcome them. Pam would sometimes lure women in for Keith. Other than the fact that when the new women were seduced without knowing the setup, it's a lot like polygamy. But Keith didn't want that. He wanted all of the women to be faithful only to him, while he could have sex to whomever he wanted. This ideology would become an early inspiration for DOS, for the society that he would create. This idea that men can choose polygamy, but women cannot. Remember, however, how I told you to pin in your head that Keith isn't only interested in women, and not in a sense that this gets fruity and that he starts seeing men and that it's all consensual? No, of course, that's not where the story goes. It goes into bloody pedophilia. And this is actually even before Nexium. Back in 1984, a family, the Hutchinsons, lived in Clifton Park, and they had a 15-year-old daughter called Gina. So, Gina was in after-school activity at a local playhouse, where her and her other friend would help them put on plays. Gina's sister has said that she walked in on a 24-year-old Keith at the time, having sex with 15-year-old Gina at their parents' house. She said before this, she hadn't realized this was happening. She knew Keith was around her sister, hanging out at a playhouse, but she didn't think much of it. She said over the next few years, Keith had a way of relating to Gina, making her feel like she was the only person in the world. He was also able to get her to divulge her dreams and fears to him. Keith managed to ingratiate his way into her life, to tell her that he loved her and that she was the one. This is what is known as grooming. But in the 1980s, while grooming might have been recognized by professionals, normal everyday people didn't have insight into it. In case you, again, aren't familiar with grooming, it is when someone builds a relationship, trust, and emotional connection with a child so that they can manipulate, exploit, and abuse them. The child or the younger person is made to feel like they're the most important person in the world. It gets them to let their guard down, and then, well, let's just call it for what it is, a pedophile exploits them and tries to get closer to them. It is said that Gina would stay involved with Keith for years, and that she even got involved during computer work at Consumer Byline. Eventually, however, Gina would end up dying by suicide. She left a suicide note so that Keith was never directly blamed for her death. Gina would not be the only underage girl that Keith groomed and sexually assaulted, and to make the record clear, she was too young to consent to any type of physical relationship with Keith, meaning that this was rape. 
That brings me to if I can insert it, if the copyright allows for it, and if I can, I will only play you the most vile comments that I have heard Keith make. All of them are vile, but the way that he speaks about sex is in particular important to understand, to get into the psyche of Keith Raniere. And, as I told you, I have gotten up for shower breaks at every single one of these. If I manage to play the every single one of these, but let me just tell you what he said in particular about sex with children. In this moment that is played in Seduced on Stars, you hear Keith speaking of sexual apprenticeship with children. And he kind of just starts speaking how it's common in different cultures, like sex with children is just super common around the world. And we call it abused, but the girl really loved it. Until the society said this was abused. So who abused who? Firstly, that is grammatically incorrect. Um, you need to say who abused whom. But also, secondly, it's psychopathic. And every single line, every single interview, every single time you hear him speaking about sex, you just know. You just know. You need to wash yourself, to cleanse yourself off of this man. Several times news articles came out about how young girls had been assaulted by Keith and nothing would ever happen to him. This is because Keith had someone very important in his circle now, although no one had ever considered them sexual partners. There is evidence that they did have sex one time to solidify their relationship. See, Keith took what he needed, in this case backing and money. This would be Claire Bronfman. Her dad was Edgar Bronfman, the heir of the Seagram liquor fortune. Claire would spend millions defending Keith when these articles popped up. She would sue the editor and writer and sometimes news source for defamation, or whatever they could. Nexium was very litigious. They sued anyone who tried to leave. They followed them for years. This would be similar to Scientology. They have been known to do the same. Even if these lawsuits weren't valid, it didn't matter because the people still had to spend years and money on lawyers to defend themselves. People learned very quickly that you didn't leave, and if you left, you'd better hide. If you remember, I said that Nexium started expanding, and they also moved into Mexico. Once they did, Keith also started bringing families from there to live in Clifton Park families with young girls. In one family, there were three sisters that all testified in court that Keith had sexual relations with them when they were 12 and 13. The prosecution also included pictures of these children that Keith had in his possession. They were nude and sometimes in various positions. So yes, that is child porn and we are still talking about early days. Besides the women sexually involved with him, the rest of ESP and Nexium were told that Keith was a renunciate. He'd given up money, sex, worldly goods on his journey to save the world. Eventually, when Keith would say controversial things about sex, instead of finding him creepy, they thought that he was just teaching them. I told you that you're gonna need a shower multiple times during this story, but now we go into the actual nitty-gritty, the actual depths of the cult. So, as ESP grew, it drew a lot of highly intelligent people. It truly did seem to help, and a lot of these people couldn't wait to share it, so they signed people up and eventually became trainers. 
I'm just going to mention a few here, some because they were involved in the crimes and some because they helped the prosecution take the cult down. Keith basically used ESP classes as a hunting ground for whatever he needed to further his cult and whatever he wanted in terms of sex. The first person we are going to speak about is a film director called Mark Vicente, who at the time was approached by Nancy Salzman and Karen, that one of the women that uh, was sleeping with Keith. He had just released his film What the Bleep Do We Know? This was an independent film that he directed and at the time was the highest grossing independent film at $10 million. Mark himself said that at the moment he was at the peak of his career and could have called any studio and they would have taken a meeting with him. So when you think about someone that gets involved in a cult, in the case of ESP and Axiom, they went for the most influential and the brightest. Keith himself said they wanted the people who were going to be running the world to be involved in ESP. After Mark heard about this amazing man, the smartest man with degrees in mathematics and understanding of quantum physics, who wanted to use his vision to change the world for the better, he was interested. Mark is a key character in this story and also really interesting. So, in the vow, he would say how he was born in South Africa and he was, during the apartheid days, thinking how could the world be different, how he can help people to have better thoughts. He saw Star Wars at the age of 13, and this is how he started seeing, finally, how he can contribute to the world being a different place. Films, making movies himself. The catch here for Mark, really, and why Keith had him in such a chokehold, if you remember, Keith knows how to sell things. He is just a natural when it comes to being a salesperson. And then Nancy is the one who emotionally breaks them. And Keith here sold him, Mark, the idea by telling him he can show him the movie version of who he could be. And he gave Mark the confidence to take responsibility for humanity. After Mark met Keith, he would end up signing up for ESP, going on to opening his own Axiom Center in Vancouver, and devoting the next 12 years of his life to Keith Ranieri. Because Mark was a filmmaker, everything started being recorded. Keith thought that every word he said was so important that even in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were recordings like we do today. Also, most of the, if not all, of the audio conversations, like phone calls, everything like that was also recorded. The better cell phones got, the better the sound. Even Keith's conversations with ESP women on these walks at night were recorded. I'm bringing this up because two series were made about Keith that I have just mentioned, and a lot of them include most of the footage and those recordings. The first was The Wow on Netflix, and it included Mark Vicente. The second one was Seduced. Uh, I believe you can find it on Amazon Prime. The Wow, I think it's removed off of the Netflix UK. I don't actually know if it was ever Netflix UK. But the more footage that you watch, the better understanding you will have. I'm just trying to give you the feel of, like, based off of what I have seen and how these people were actually pulled into this. But both shows were good, and if you want to learn even more, I recommend both of them. 
Among one of the first few people to join was Claire Bronfman that I have mentioned, who was of the Canadian billionaire legacy. And she would become the company's heftiest financial backer. And it just speaks to Keith's ability at this point to convince influential people to join. Claire Bronfman would eventually become Nexium's operations director and one of its largest financial contributors. It was said that she would spend $150 million on Nexium. I'm mentioning Claire because of how insanely difficult you will realize it is to actually progress through the ranks and become anybody at Nexium. And clearly, Keith here had an in, had a backing from Claire, and this is the reason why she actually managed to become somebody. However, the motivation when it comes to Claire baffles me, and I didn't have an insane amount of time to look into it. So if somebody knows why somebody like Claire would have been pulled into this organization, let me know. Because with everybody else that we're going to speak about today, you kind of see like a clear pull. You see how Keith was able to sell them something like this. But with Claire, I truly can't really pin it. I can't still put a pin in it. This is when this story, however, gets even more sickening, or just controversial, or both. Because Nancy, the co-founder, decides one day, why don't I actually bring my own daughter to these teachings? So she decides her 21-year-old daughter, Lauren, should take ESP. Lauren Saltzman would take ESP and become a highly paid trainer eventually. She was groomed by Keith and entered a sexual relationship with him and became one of his first-line slaves. Lauren testified in court that she knew about all of the other sex that he had, but she and Keith were together so long, nine years, she considered him her husband. There is evidence that Keith had sex with Nancy, Lauren's mother, as well. However, it's unclear whether Lauren knew that because it was not well known. This was the same kind of solidifying sex he had with other women that had uses other than sex to him. Then we have Sarah Edmondson, who was an actress that lived in Vancouver, had met Mark on a cruise, and he suggested she take an ESP course. Sarah was impressed by Mark and later became lifelong friends with him. Sarah would travel to Seattle to take the ESP course, and at the end, she too was in. The way that Sarah talks about the integration, like the onboarding into Nexium in the vow, is that her life just didn't seem like it was going where she had intended. She was kind of stuck when it came to her career, and she was looking for life's purpose. And then she goes on to this cruise, and it is said like she was just sort of like on the deck of this boat, and she started coughing. And Mark Vicenta approached her and said, what do you lose if you stop coughing? And Sarah realized in that moment that she always would link sickness with attention, and attention grabbing. Mark then started just casually speaking to her about ESP and Axiom, and here she is now talking to a successful person. Like, when he introduced himself, like, she immediately knew of the movie, the highest-grossing documentary, etc., etc., like, saying that ESP had helped him with all of his difficulties. So she immediately sees and in for herself to do as well, to possibly become more successful, learn how to actually find her life's purpose. And there's another interesting story here. 
related to both Mark and Sarah, and that comes with Bonnie, Mark's wife. So there's a couple of members in Axiom because, of course, they would be there sometimes for over a decade that would meet each other there, that would actually get married with other people acting as witnesses at their own wedding. Mark would be one of those people who would actually meet his wife in Nexium, and Bonnie, his wife, would become crucial for this story. When Bonnie and Mark met, Mark was a fan of Star Wars. As I mentioned, he started being a fan when he was a teenager, and Bonnie actually was an actress in Star Wars. She was at that time making music, and Mark heard her sing and fell for her. And at the time, Bonnie didn't really like the record label that she was with. She was struggling with fear of anxiety, and she just wasn't feeling happy in life. This is when she met Mark, and at this point, he was already in Axiom, so again, he just loosely starts talking about it, and Bonnie was hooked. So, in 2010, Bonnie joins the group. This just goes to show Mark and Sarah were not huge celebrities at the time, but they were extremely useful in bringing other celebrities in. Because you'd hear who it is backed by at this point. It's backed by Bronfman's, it's backed by somebody who's billionaire, has like that whole legacy behind them. And then also you hear about all of these people who have struggled once, who have been at that point in their life where they were looking for life's purpose, and suddenly they're doing better for themselves. They're on the pathway of possibly becoming better when it comes to their career. And they're already famous. They already have some leverage to actually pull you in. Sarah became a trainer, actually the best salesperson in the entire company. Opened the Vancouver site with Mark and was lured into DOS. I'm gonna get into DOS in a second, but first let's just meet a couple or more people. In particular, our second silent drop comes about because the next person to join is, in my opinion, as important to the cult and Keith's vision as Nancy. And that was Alison Mack. You might know who Alison Mack is, either from television or movies, or from when the story broke because her face was front and center. Alison Mack started acting when she was only four years old. She was in many movies and was a major co-star on Smallville. Or, <laughs> I put in the script because I had no idea where I knew this face from apart from Nexium. And then I googled it and it's Seven Heaven, which is very niche. And apparently, according to my friends, when I left them a voice note, it's not niche at all. People have watched Seventh Heaven. I don't know why, I just find it bizarre that after school, like, they were showing Seventh Heaven in Serbia. Or how else have I discovered it? But anyways, I really like that show. And uh, at the time of meeting Keith, Alison was 24 years old. She had a good career, good life, and was going places. She also had lots of friends who spoke out later that say that they saw a drastic change in her. How she was pulled into Nexium, apparently, Christine Crook, who also was from Smallville fame, and her co-star and friend invited Ellie to take an ESP course. Many people have said that as soon as Keith and his inner circle realized Allison was at an ESP class in Seattle, they knew they had to have her. Bringing in a young, beautiful, and successful actress was one of their goals, in hopes that she would recruit more. This is a lot like Scientology. They actively recruit actors, and they even have a celebrity center. 
So most people that take ESP, coach ESP, they didn't even get to meet Keith. Some meet him later as something called V-Week, which I'm gonna get to. However, he is the founder, not someone who everybody in the company will meet. But when it came to Mark, they will come to get him on a Learjet. And as soon as Allison finished the week of ESP classes, they got her on a plane straight to Albany to meet Keith. After the first meeting, after Allison had been pulled into his close circle, she would go on to commit many crimes against the law and crimes against humanity, all in Keith's name. And a lot of people see her just as evil as him. The difference might be that Keith was like that all along. Allison was made to be that way. In that meeting, Allison tells him that she's an actress. Actually, she says she's an artist. Keith hones in on her joy, turns it, twists it, makes her wonder if art really brings her joy at all. You have to remember, she was just essentially hypnotized for a week, and I'll get into how ESP gets into your psyche. But there she is, in a weakened state, and he pounces on her. Not physically, because this guy doesn't need to touch a woman to attack her. Literally, in the 10 minutes they spent together, it was like watching him reach in, break her into pieces, empty her out, and leave her hollow. Of course, he was going to take the next several years filling her back up with all of the crazy mindfuckery. Keith was arrested on March 27, 2018. Ellie, among other women, was with him. So she spent 12 years directly under the control of a narcissist psychopath. That is a long time to be that close to evil. Now, that is Jeannie's paragraph on Allison. And at first, I blindly agree with it. And then I watched The Vow, and then I watched Seduced, and then I watched some YouTube videos, and then I read more on the story online. And truly, Allison is the one person in this story that I'm very conflicted about. It's the most bizarre thing, I feel like, to watch somebody in their youth on television and then hear this about them in the news. And, like, once you fully immerse yourself in this story, as we are about to, you learn, like, what, how, just how in, involved she was when it came to Nexium. And, I don't know, just think of somebody for you, like the Home Alone kid, Macaulay Culkin, or Urkel, Jaleel White. Somebody who you would see on television, who was comforting to you as a child, and then them going on to commit some of the most atrocious acts. But this is where the story will go. Before that, we have another case of a mom inviting their child to ESP. And this reminded me of Opus Day. I don't know if you have watched that video on the channel, but here, in a way, where they will also try to do everything to get that child out. In 2011, television and real-life royalty Catherine Oxenberg invited her 21-year-old daughter India to take an ESP course with her. Catherine was an actress most notable for the original dynasty, so not the current one, which, like, legendary, iconic, very gay, love it. And her mother is Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia, 
who was at the time Prince Charles' second cousin. Then Jeannie goes on, <laughs> she goes wild in the script, Jeannie, I read every single word, and I just laughed at this, because she said, I know by the time of filming in 2022 it will be King Charles. God save the king and all that. When, when did you ever hear me say God save the queen, or the king for that matter? When did I ever share any loving words towards the monarchy, Jeannie? Anyways, so Catherine said that a friend told her about ESP, and she invited India, her daughter, who said at first she wasn't overly interested, but just went to hang out with her mom. India would join Nexium for very similar reasons that you will hear possibly Ellie and Sarah and Mark join, and that was because she was looking for a more purposeful life. She was very young and loved a week-long program. It inspired her. Some cults prey on the weak. ESP and Nexium was completely different, because they wanted the best, they wanted the strongest. So after the first week-long course, India asked her mom to pay for her 16-day intensive, and they went. Also, just a side note, when the coaches in LA alerted the higher-ups that Catherine Oxenberg was in the class, all of a sudden Nancy Saltzman shows up live and in the flesh, just in time to do Catherine's EM. This was planned because Nancy didn't just show up at a five-day class, but Catherine was an actress, but more than that, she was well-connected to the kind of people they wanted in those classes. Catherine and her husband joined India in Albany for that 16-day intensive. Catherine also hosted a class called Janus at her house. Janus was supposed to be about women empowerment, but like everything, was written by Keith, so it was rife with misogyny. Catherine and her husband stopped taking ESP classes after that. But sadly, India would continue. India would become a coach, would be targeted by Keith, groomed, trafficked, branded, and made into a slave. Ellie's slave, and through her, Keith's slave. Two quick sidelines here, just because we're gonna get into the grim stuff. We're just gonna get worse and worse from this point on. And here is where I would like to mention, just in case you're not familiar with this channel, if you're inclined to blame the victims in the cases that I speak about, and you post that, you verbalize that, you write like a fucking comment on like a whole chunk of a whole essay, I will delete it and I will block you, so don't waste your time. Also, seek therapy. Also, just don't blame the victims, because here something that is important to understand is the stage that these people were at, how vulnerable they were, regardless of being smart, being influential, being famous. If you were to want to improve yourself, to want to become the best version of yourself in a particular area, whether it is in your personal life, whether it is in your professional life. If somebody was to offer you a tailored program in order for you to achieve that goal, you would take it. Maybe you wouldn't pay the amount of money, maybe you wouldn't have the money to pay in order to attend a program like Nexium. Maybe you wouldn't have 2000 plus dollars to pay for it, or maybe you wouldn't sign up for coding, for like therapy, for CBT, for anything that you hear about where you're like, oh, I would never do that. I would never sign up for that, even if it was free, or when something is free, I would never sign up for it. But if somebody was to tailor something towards your needs, or 
if somebody trusted was to recommend you something and this is the area where you want to develop in, you would sign up for it. And secondly, and this is something to do with cults, with societies like this, with Scientology, with different organizations, they're not immediately intense, right? So in this case, because of where the story goes, I feel inclined to point that out. Catherine left thinking that she was leaving her daughter in safe hands. She thought, this isn't for me, but my daughter is safe. She had no idea of the extent that this will reach. Otherwise, she would have never left India behind. Now, to speak about Janice, on the website, it was advertised at, uh, at its core being about friendship. It's about fostering relationships that stand the test of time, trend, and circumstances. Jeunesse is about building a more caring world, friend by friend. Jeunesse tapes that I have seen from Seduced do mention rape, and Keith is there. In the society that is supposed to be for women, of course, teachings are led by Keith. So, um, this is where you just will gag, because Keith would blur the lines between rape and consent. He would say things like, you physically could rape, really the issue is why won't you let yourself go there? Most people scream abuse and they have no idea of the morality that they're talking about, and a lot of times the screaming of abuse is abuse in itself. One of the Jeunesse tracks was actually about rape, and Keith would blur the lines between rape and consent. You physically could rape? Really the issue is why won't you let yourself go there? The idea that rape wasn't rape, if the victim didn't choose to see it that way, started to become normalized. And it wasn't like you just heard those lessons once. You heard them over and over and over again. So that just became normal. Molested, abused. The worst thing that ever happened to you, you know how I know it wasn't that bad? Because you're all sitting here. Then, in the episode 3 of Seduced, he says, It feels good to stick your dick in a steak. Here's another flesh. Oh, it's a baby. That's what it's like. Talking about, why wouldn't you go the distance and have sex with just anybody, minors included? The thing, for example, with sexual abuse. In some states, it's their ages. There's the age of consent. Some states, it's 17. Some parts of the world it's 12, some parts of the world it's right. So what's abuse in one area is not abuse in another. But what is it, really? Abuse is, does the person, is the person a child or is the person adult-like? Some little children are perfectly happy with it. Daniela, who was kept in a room for two years, says she was sexually abused by Keith, and so were her two sisters. All three of them became impregnated by Keith Ranieri, and were encouraged to get abortions. Let's talk about really gross things. Like raping children, raping a baby. Can you imagine what it would be like if you were just a primitive, someone who just was of the body? A baby, it's just something that feels good. What if it was just a lump of flesh? I'm going to be really crude, but, oh, it feels good to stick my dick in a steak. Oh, yeah, here's another flesh. Oh, it's a baby. That's what it's like. We don't know the full scale of how many victims there could be out there. You look back and you see all of these cases and you see that there have been 
media reports on all of these things, and nothing was done. In another voice recording here only of him, he would say, if we grab the thing that we want to fuck and take it, they enjoy it. Just gives you an idea that this man completely blurred the line between consent, underage sex, overage sex, polygamy, monogamy. Just sex was to keep whatever he wanted it to be. And that's what he would preach in Jeunesse, in any other class, really, in any other talks, whenever he would speak publicly. And here, especially, this is what he would preach to women. Like with Ilan School and Opus Dei, we must speak of Dana life. Because here we can focus on what happened once Catherine left India there. Once the training is over and you want to reach your full potential and do the training yourself, become a coach. So first, we're going to be talking about the curriculum. It melts together a lot of different sources. It starts as an empowerment course and ends somewhere completely different. In the first five-day course, which was around $2,100, had days that were 10 hours long. The participants would immediately be told they are going to be uncomfortable. They were told that some of what they heard might feel weird and strange, and they might feel bad. But that was the point. They were trying to get them out of their comfort zones. Some of the language, rules, and customs might feel weird too. But that, again, was the point. The rules were that you had to bow when entering the place, like you would when entering a judo, karate dojo. They also wore sashes, which seemed weird to them because they were short, almost like wearing a scarf, and beginning students all wore a white sash. They were also told Kiefer Neary was the founder, just how amazing he was, and all the lies that I told you earlier. However, they believed them, because they would hear these lies on repeat every single day. Because he was the founder, he went by the name Vanguard. And Nancy, as the co-founder and creator of the curriculum, was to be called Prefect. When coming into the space, they had to bow and say, thank you, Vanguard, thank you, Prefect. They had to do the same when leaving, and even though neither Keith nor Nancy was actually there, this was to pay tribute to them. Personal opinion here, but I feel like, again, this is Keith's inspiration from, like, his judo, professional judo days, or whatever the hell he called them, when it comes to them bowing for people who sometimes might not even be in the room. But here is where we have insight from Sarah, from her interviews that she has done post-Nexium. And these are on the sashes. And she says, like, when you see them, you don't understand anything special. You just, like, actually think they're quite silly. And some of them then have the stripes on them, and you kind of want the sashes with the most stripes. You want to basically get to the yellow sash when you're a coach. And then you start thinking of them differently, because this silly piece of silk represents an idea. She says your mind shifts. You feel like, okay, I'm already here. Like, I have already paid for it. And you kind of look at those videos from Nancy, which she has not changed ever. It literally looks like she is still talking like an 80s newscaster. And then you see people going on stage, putting sashes all over them. They too, like, you're just thinking, like, what the hell? I just wasted, like, almost $2,000 of my money. Why am I here? But then people like Mark, or people who are already 
very enmeshed in this, kind of tell you, well, you already paid your money, just wait until day three. And day three is when they do the self-esteem module with you, how you can change the outlook. You know, like if you are not a morning person, they can help you become one. And it really just changes how you perceive yourself. And that's when you're hooked. And that's when you decide to stay. This is when you start being taught the most destructive things. And it's something that is called being at cause. Basically, this means that you choose your feelings for everything. You choose pain, fear, abandonment, and you can choose joy and happiness instead. So if you are unhappy, scared, injured, in pain, then you are choosing to feel that. No one can make you feel anything. That sounds fine, except this makes you responsible for everything that you feel. So if someone is targeting you and they make you feel uncomfortable, no, that's you making feel yourself uncomfortable. It gets you in the mindset that you are responsible for everything you feel. So if something feels bad, it is your fault, not the person hurting you, and that's something you need to work on. Eventually, Keith would take this as far as saying that if someone was sexually assaulted or molested and they felt bad about it, complained and cried about it, they were the one causing the pain, choosing the pain, not the attacker. Now, they have many other modules and some are targeted at getting the negative, suppressive people out of your life. ESP treats this in a very similar way that we have seen in Opus Dei, that you've seen in Elan School and the Troubled Teen Industry, and also that you see in Scientology. So if somebody, whoever that might be in your life, maybe your boyfriend or your mom, who is not helping you be the best you, they're suppressive. That starts you down the path of isolation from friends and family, so that all you have in your life are people from ESP. The last module that I'm going to be talking about, and then we are kind of going to get into more of the day in life, rather like the year in life here, would be one titled Why We Aren't a Cult. This is called EM, which stands for Exploration of Meaning. This is something that each person does at the end of the first five-day course. And if they stay, we'll have this done to them over and over again. The person comes to the front of the class and sits with the coach. They ask for a trauma you have experienced or the issue you want to work on. Mark Vicente had trouble with panic attacks, for example, while in high traffic jams on the freeways. Whatever you're working on, the coach, who in no way is a therapist, starts talking to you about it, asking you to feel the panic, pain, whatever it might be. Essentially, it's exposing your worst fears and deepest pain, and they supposedly help you with it. It's like the most intense therapy that you can imagine. Many, many people walk away from the first EM on a high. They literally feel high. Most say the problem, whatever it was, is gone. And this sounds far-fetched, but it also has to do with the mindset of that week. They're high-energy classes, they have few breaks, so the people are low on food and water. They're using NLP on them in every module that they show, because Nancy does all of the modules. By that last day, these people are tired, their brains are fried, and now you want them to expose their deepest secrets. During the week-long classes, they also have the people do questionnaires and little groups, where they are more than encouraged to get very personal very fast. Scientology has something very similar to EM. It's called auditing. Essentially, 
It's to get you past whatever feeling you're having. So just when you end on a high, they talk about the 16-day intensive. They will go to extreme methods to get you to sign up for it. One example is a woman who could never afford the higher price classes, so Ellie offered to pay for it. Then the girl could work it off, quote-unquote. That is getting close to the line of illegal, but not yet. Coaches would talk people into getting personal loans, asking family for the money, and so on. These classes were 12 hours a day for 16 days, and they cost $7,500. This sounds ridiculously expensive for personal growth, but these were motivated people, and most of them were targeted because they were also loaded. One thing we are still to talk about is the V-week, something that I have mentioned before for you to pin into your head once you actually hear about it. This would be a week-long, basically, summer camp for adults held at the YMCA resort. It's held for a week of Keith's birthday, and it's basically mandatory. The last few days of this week, a group from each center would put on a performance that they have had, been working on for weeks, which had a song and a dance. They would all pay tribute to Keith. They also hold what is similar to an award ceremony, where people get new sashes and rankings, all based on their personal growth. Most all young, pretty and thin women that advance. There are men as well, but they seem to advance more based on how influential they are and how many people they enroll. This isn't a week of relaxation, although they do have swimming, canoeing, and hiking. For the whole week, they're completely immersed in ESP, taking classes, and for some, this is the first time they meet a founder, Keith Raniere. This is high energy, basically wearing you down physically. You see the V-week represented well in Seduced, and... People worship this man. This is one of the many times during this research that I have actually just stood up and had to take a break. Everything is just done for him. Everybody kind of like shakes his hand. Well, not everybody. People that actually got the sashes on the stage and then they get to meet him. And he kisses most people on the lips. That is something that he is quite known to do. And again, just people, because they see him as this renunciate, don't make anything out of him. They would say that this is the first time they have met him. They're just surprised how normal and human he actually is. It is, of course, the day of the week. Happy birthday, Vanguard. The birthday part of it for Keith was at the very end. And for some people, it's the first time that they had ever met him in person. There was a lot of hype and a lot of build-up. Thanks, Vanguard, and happy birthday from all of us. The first time I met Keith, I wasn't awestruck. But, I mean, you kind of just go with the flow of the environment that you're entering. Or at least I did. The West Coast has a sunshine. V-Day, we had what was called Tribute Night. All the centers would practice for months, and they would perform for Keith as a gift for his birthday. Because 
he was this great genius who was here to make people's lives better. Now we'll finally talk about DOS, which is what actually brought Keith down. His twisted version of life that brought so much pain to others. DOS, as I mentioned, stands for Dominus Obsequius Sororia. And Axiom said it loosely translated to master-slave sorority. Keith might have been a mathematical, a quantum physics genius in his mind, of course. He was not really the best when it came to languages. So let's address the Latin here, because this is not what it means. The first word, dominus, is the correct word for master. Obsequious is not a Latin word at all. But if they were going for the word obsecur, that means pliant. Sororium is not a Latin word either, but sororum is, and it loosely translates to sisters. And Keith, the genius, has his verbs wrong. If he was going for master over the sisters, the way he phrased it actually means the master is the pliant one. Better word for pliant if you're not really um, familiar with it, and in this case I love this synonym more, is bent. Sisters over the master, more like, as it will turn out to be. Nobody knows the exact date when the first line of slaves was started, but Alison Mack and actress Nikki Klein from Battleship Galactica, as well as Lauren and a few others, were in the original nine. I'm gonna tell you how this worked. So, when Lauren approached her employee and best friend, Sarah Edmondson, about DOS, she told her she wanted to share something that had really helped her grow in her job and on a personal level. Sarah and Lauren had been best friends for years now. Lauren was a high-level coach, one of the highest paid for EMs, was the godmother to her child and had officiated Sarah's wedding. Sarah had no reason to not trust what was coming next. Lauren said it was really secret, and the only way she could tell Sarah about it was if she, Sarah, provided collateral. The reason given for the collateral here was that the person needed to prove they could be trusted and would never share the secret. Because there are many names, quick pause here. Lauren, if you remember, is Nancy, co-founder's daughter, and her and Sarah bonded um, in Nexium. Sarah was also one of the few people, well, that we know of, kind of like Mark, who actually got married when they were there. She actually, I think, even met the person that she married in Axiom. There were so many people from this society, from ESP. Everybody, like, attended the wedding. And, as you can tell, like, she also had a child. So, like, she had her whole life, and then also most of it, as in work life, was dedicated to Nexium. And here, at this point, she was also very stuck in terms of progressing within the organization, just like she was stuck before joining Nexium and progressing in her career. So she was not moving in through the rankings. And at this point, she would say in the interviews, she had a kid, she wanted to progress, she wanted to actually start making money. These people now need to give a collateral, that if they broke their word, it would be released. Sarah tried several things, but Lauren finally talked her into taking a nude photo and giving it to her. Then she told Sarah that DOS was a group of women, working together, encouraging each other, women only, and the goal was their personal growth. She then told Sarah she would have to make a lifetime commitment to her, a vow, 
that she would put their relationship thus above everything else in her life, including her husband. She would be responsible to Lauren in all ways. Sarah said she thought this sounded just like more ESP, that this was Lauren who she trusted implicitly, and Lauren was way ahead in ESP, as far as higher up in the company. So, after thought, Sarah said yes. Then Lauren told her the name of it, what it meant, and that it was a master-slave dynamic. Sarah, and pretty much every other second-line slave, would say that immediately had an issue with the words masters and slaves. Lauren told her to think of it like a teacher-student relationship, but she would be responsible to Lauren in all things. As this continues on, Sarah starts having to text Lauren every day. Good morning, master, and good night, master. This is similar to what it was like when India Oxenberg, the daughter of Catherine's, was approached by Alison Mack. India was trying to move up in the company to become a paid coach, which I'm going to explain why in a minute was hard. She was working every day, coaching and taking classes, but she wasn't getting anywhere. She liked Alison Mack, and she thought of being in on something that helped Ellie grow, help her move up the path was great. Ellison had moved up the stripe path very quickly, rising to the rank of proctor, which is as high as you can go. Then, of course, she had to give collateral, which won't be released as long as she kept her word and would only be seen by Ellie. India wrote down family secrets that, if revealed, would be very, very bad, which she has to put in the format of a press release and have it notarized. Then Ellie tells her about DOS, and that it would require a commitment to Ellie and to her own growth. India says yes to it. When she hears more about DOS, she too has an issue with the wording, and Ellie says the same thing. Think of it as mentor and student. She makes India swear a lifetime vow to her. Now, both India and Sarah had asked right away if Keith was behind this. They both said they were horrified that Keith might have their collateral. They were both told absolutely not. He had nothing to do with it. It was women only. Both Sarah and India start having daily contact with their masters. They would be given tasks to do, like journaling and exercise. Now, you can clearly see what I have been telling you, like, in that pause, in that sideline before. It's never as intense. This is why some people basically drop out and, you know, they have already signed NDA. They don't even have a story to tell. Like, even if they were to go to the press after, what, a five-day program, then afterwards they would drop out, though. However, if you are actually pulled in, this is when it just starts gradually becoming worse and worse, because there's this society, you believe women, you have already been there, you're now not progressing through the ranks. And once then, people who trust you offer you up to just give up collateral and everything's gonna be okay, like you will start actually progressing and moving up the ranks, you do it. And at this point, when so immersed, when collateral is given, the way people are controlled is, yes, at first, by just checking in with your master and you just try to see them as your teacher. But also, as you can imagine, 
by their schedules being filled up to the brim. I will put some of the screenshots of how their days looked like, but Bonnie and Sarah in the documentaries would say sometimes they worked 23 hours a day and they had to be ready to report whenever their master would buzz. This is how he controlled people and rather how then the first line slaves would control their subordinates the readiness drills. They were a part of DOS as they were in some other groups within Nexian. Basically, the master sends a text that says, quote, ready, or just a question mark, and the slaves have to reply with ready in under one minute. These drills are done all hours of the day and night, and no matter where you were or what you were doing, you had to reply. You might be on a plane flight, driving your car, or even sound asleep, because some did happen in the middle of the night. If you were late replying, then your whole group had to do a penance, which might be standing outside in the snow for three minutes. One cult expert, Dr. Lalit, said the use of the term ready is significant because it implies consent. They aren't asking how are you doing, how's your day, are you okay? They're asking are you ready? Or whatever comes next. And the answer isn't maybe or what do you need, it's literally I am ready. At V Week, Keith talked about how no other group except for the military does readiness drills. Also during this week, the coaches would present stats on what percentage of groups were ready to go at any given time. Cult expert Rick Ross said he thought Keith was trying to weaponize his followers. He wanted the entire group, thousands of followers, to react to whatever perceived threat in under a minute. One common request of masters was that their slaves go on a diet. That's all about self-control. These diets, however, were about 500 calories a day, and they had to measure, weigh, and photograph what they were about to eat, send a photo to their masters, and ask, Master, may I have 90 calories? They had to ask for everything, even food. Think about that. You have young girls that are sleep-deprived because they are coaching and taking classes. They are busy all day, and then at night they have journaling, EMs, and self-examination tasks to do. Now they're food-deprived and asking if they can eat. But it gets worse. After many months of being in DOS, Ellie convinced India that she needed to live in Albany, in Clifton Park, so she could help her more. India at the time lived in LA and was having to come to Clifton Park, where Nexium and ESP's headquarters were, for intensive classes. India was also made to come to Albany for more intensives when she failed to stick to her diet. Maybe she had an extra cracker that day. Over this time, she was also taught or told by many ESP coaches that her connection to her mom wasn't healthy and it was holding her back they started separating India from her mom in the very first class. This seemed to be a common tactic that anyone outside of ESP was not to be trusted or kept in your daily life. Eventually, India would move to Albany. Here is another silent drop. India will become very important in this story because when she moved there, she lived with Ellie in a townhouse next to Keith in Clifton Park. Many ESP coaches lived there, like Mark and his wife Bonnie. They all had townhouses next to each other. India had a trust fund for college, but she hadn't liked college and spent it all on ESP classes. 
If you remember, I have mentioned the sashes and also something that is called a stripe path. Basically, as you rose in the ranks, you got a different colored stash, and this is for you to show your growth. They also had names for the ranks, like student, coach, proctor. Now, you had to teach classes and sign up new members to move up the company. Once again, Keith has set up an MLM, where you have to continually sign up new members and sign members up for newer, more expensive classes. You also had to work on your own personal growth, and that was judged by those above you. Don't forget who is above everybody, Keith. So it was easy to see that all the cute young thin girls moved up in rank. India didn't have much money, so instead of paying Ali rent, she worked for her. She had been a coach for several years, which meant she was teaching classes, but had not yet advanced up the stripe path enough to get paid. As mentioned before, they had to teach classes, sign up at least five people a month, and then work on their personal growth. So you could be teaching classes, signing up even more than required, but if the people above you didn't think you'd dealt with your issues, then you didn't advance, didn't get paid. So if you didn't deal with one of the things, like didn't sign up enough people, that's already a mistake, like you can't actually progress within ranks. This ties into what happened in DOS, because at this point, India and many of the other slaves truly believed they needed to do more. So, if your close friend, boss, and mentor tells you repeatedly that you need to work on your issues, you will believe it. While Alison had India on this diet, she requests her to take a picture of herself in her bra and underwear to send to Keith, so he can analyze her body type and body frame and let her know how much she should weigh. Remember that to India, Keith was a completely non-sexual person. So once again, this was about her own personal growth. And if the idea bothered her, then it was up to her to get rid of those feelings to get an EM. After seeing the picture, Keith decided India should weigh 106 pounds. India was 5'7", and later said the last time she remembered weighing this much was in 6th grade. According to health charts, she should have weighed between 122 and 138 pounds, and that is for a small frame. India doesn't question this at the time. If Keith and Alison thought this was correct, that's what she would do. From the beginning of DOS, Alison and India had become incredibly close. In true ESP style, there were tons of phone calls and just relentless digging into India's innermost insecurities and endless EMs. India said Alison brought this up as bonding, wanting to know what she was most uncomfortable with, especially about sexual or intimate things, and any body insecurities. Of course, any insecurities were seen as things she should work on if she wanted personal growth. Close to a year into DOS, Alison gives India an assignment, which is about leaning into her fear. She is to seduce Keith. She is told to go to Keith's house and ask him to take a fully nude photo of her and then have him send it to Alison as proof. Keith picked her up that night and took her to his house. She would say, in seduced, she just kind of blurted it out, asking him to take this picture. She said she undressed quickly, laid back on the bed, he took the picture and then sent it to Alison. He was fully clothed, which made India even more vulnerable in this situation. Then he tells her that he is Alison's master and her grandmaster. 
Here he is revealing that he is behind DOS, and then she knows he has her collateral. She dressed as quickly as she could and left. This seduction assignment was similar for most slaves, some testified in court. It was always presented as helping this girl get past whatever issue her master had found in her. The slaves were made to give monthly collateral, and after a while they didn't have anything to give, so they would send nude photos. Or their masters told them to make something up. For instance, one might have to write a letter about how their father had molested them as a child and have it notarized, even though it was false. And this is where India, especially in Seduce, says, like, at some point you want to take it on yourself, like, you want to actually just take a nude over lying over a family member, as at least it was then on them. Like, they felt less bad over this, over doing this, over sending a collateral over. This didn't just happen once, and then it was over. They were having to put their families and themselves at risk every single month. If a girl told a secret or thus or refused to do what their masters asked, they were threatened with the release of a collateral. India said they lived in constant fear of displeasing their master and grandmaster. Another fun thing Nexium as whole did was penance. Let's say you gave your word to your gym buddy that you'd meet every Tuesday at 6 a.m. and you didn't show up. You'd have to do a penance. This could be a three minutes under an ice-cold shower, having to do planks for longer and longer, which is an exercise, standing in the snow at 3 a.m. In those penance was something else entirely. India said she was asked to videotape while Alison peddled another first-line slave, Danielle Padilla, while the two of them were entirely naked. This was Alison's penance for not making her weight goal. India said the video was then sent to Keith. Many have speculated about first-line slaves, how they were pulled in, how they were treated, and if they were collateralized. In court testimony, a second-line slave named Nicole said when she was worried about her collateral, Elisa told her that Keith had threatened to release her sex tape. It's not known whether this was a recording of the two of them, but if so, it's almost certain he isn't shown, because it was her that would be hurt by the release, not him. India said in Seduce that Alison wore a silis on her tie that she tightened throughout the day. A silis, if you remember, again, if you have watched my Opus Dei video, is a barred metal belt that is worn around a tie traditionally for religious penance, and it signifies ultimate devotion. At some point, Alison suggests, rather, again, there's no suggestions here, she just implies to India that they should take a girl's trip. The two of them and, like, some other girls that were under Ellie. And during this trip, she asked them all to take a family photo of them. And the family photo was, of course, all of them naked. What they didn't know is that Ellie sent the picture to Keith. However, another slave called Nicole as Alison dropped the phone on the table, saw the message back from Keith, and Keith said, all mine, question mark, and the devil face emoji. So Nicole starts questioning Alison, like, why did you send it to Keith? I thought this was collateral, I thought this was a women's group, I thought it all goes to her. However, Alison didn't like being questioned, so as a punishment, she asked all of these women to again get nude, and she took close-up pictures of their 
vaginas as a collateral this time. And this is where I have a huge problem with Alison Mack and it only gets worse because at some point the ideas are coming out of her own head. Keith doesn't even have to ask her to do anything. And that can be fully coercion, that can be somebody fully compliant, or it could be somebody who got to the stage where they are evil themselves. What will, however, be the beginning of his demise, slaves bringing in other slaves, the amount of collateral that he would have, and the amount of power? He got too ambitious. There was no stopping. Like, this is how a pyramid scheme was to work. It's just now it's all women. It's all word of mouth. People need to move up to the rankings. And how they do that? They bring in more people. He just got a bit too cocky. Not a bit. Not a bit. Because in order for you to have a better understanding of DOS and the kind of pressure that these slaves, quote-unquote, were under, we have to talk about the sex and the branding. If you remember, India was instructed by Alison to start working with Keith so that he could help her with her sexual and intimacy issues, although she didn't think that she had any. She said she had to go to his townhouse, wait naked for him in the loft bed above his library, and even though he knew she was there, he made her wait for hours. When he would arrive, he asked her personal questions about her sexual history, and he stayed dressed through the entire assault. She said he performed oral sex on her that went on for felt like hours, didn't feel good, and her chest hurt. She was worried the whole time about what would happen next and dreading it. But then he just stopped and that was it. There were countless times she was made to do this. Remember, she is collateralized so far into this. She lost the ability to consent a long time ago. India's story isn't different than most of the other slaves. They were also being forced into sexual relations with Keith. The ones that came forward said nothing happened with him until they met their weight goal. Which is so bizarre. Just he... Oh, I don't want to think about Keith in any more of like the sexual light that he is already portrayed in. But he just liked these women. Starved. Starved. That's how he liked them. That's what he would get off on. It's just the most bizarre freaking thing. It's not the most bizarre. The most bizarre is what comes next. Most of the second-line slaves have said that they were told at some point they would be getting a very small tattoo, which was to foster togetherness. Alison's slaves were actually told they were getting a brand, very small, only about the size of a dime. She showed them videos of people getting brands, and in these videos, the person branding is experienced at this, and these were usually for religious or devotion reasons. The person definitely knows what the brand will look like, the size, and placement. Sarah Edmondson was told by Lauren that this was going to be a small tattoo in their pubic region. In court, the prosecution played several recordings of Keith discussing the branding with Allison. He said the slaves should be naked and placed on the table. They should have their hands held above their head and their legs held with feet apart, almost like a sacrifice. He said it should be recorded from a vulnerable position as collateral and the slaves should ask to be branded. With the phrase, it would be my honor, Master, please brand me, or something similar. He made sure to add they needed to ask for the brand before being held down on the table, to make sure it didn't seem like they were coerced. 
Just before the branding ceremony, Sarah and her group were finally told that this was going to be a brand and not a tattoo. Lauren said she had one, as did all of the first-line slaves. And of course, Sarah freaked out and tried to back out of it. Lauren started with guilt by reminding her again that she was committed to her personal growth. She would trust what her master was asking of her, and she would just blindly do it. She also pointed out that Sarah was a proctor, which is the highest rank, and she had to set a good example for the rest of them. Then, of course, she reminded her of her collateral, and basically the rest was bullying. India's group tried to back out as well, because they knew ahead of time, but they got pretty much the same treatment. The women were all told the brand was a symbol for the elements, like the mountains, the sky, the water. The person who did a brand on both Sarah's and India's groups was a woman in India's group, Dr. Danielle Roberts. Yep, an actual doctor was even sucked into this. But this is absolutely no medical procedure. There is no anesthetic used, not even a topical numbing gel. The difference in the two groups is that Sarah had no idea Keith was in charge of DOS, as she had never been given the seduction assignment. Sarah was later told by Lauren, you were never going to have sex with Keith. Remember, Keith had different uses for different types of people, and Sarah was fantastic at enrollment. Also, Lauren's slaves weren't told up to this point that there were others. So that night, while blindfolded and naked, they all found out. They were allowed to take off their blindfolds when at a secret destination, which Sarah figured out immediately was Allison Mack's townhouse. Lauren then told them each master has six slaves, and that they would need to start enrolling their own slaves into DOS, and she would be those slaves' grandmaster. The secrecy of DOS is what makes this work, because it's not like you can go around asking Axiom members if they're in a secret slave relationship. That's the quickest way to get your collateral released, so nobody would risk it. They are at Ellison Max townhouse, remember? And Sarah would go first when being branded, and it took 30 minutes. There was no stamp, just Danielle with a cauterizing pen, dragging it across her pubic region. She drew it on with a marker first and then traced it. It was also not the size of a dime, it was approximately two inches around. She said other than childbirth, Sarah never felt anything so painful, and even childbirth didn't hurt like this. The smell of the burning flesh was so strong, it filled up the whole townhouse. But Sarah was in ESP, and she said she tried to manifest joy and peace. Both Sarah and India described this associating and watching it happen to their bodies. The masters read, the best slave derives the highest pleasure from being her master's ultimate tool, independent of use. Your greatest joy is to surrender completely. Then they said a line the girls had to keep repeating. Feel the pain, feel the love. India said she couldn't feel much of the pain as she was watching it happen from above. But when the cauterizing pain was dragged over her pubic bone, she got a jolt of pain. While each girl went, they were all held down so they wouldn't jerk or jump. Some screamed and cried in obvious pain, all while this was being recorded. As hard as this is to read and to hear, the branding was the wrong step for Keith, because finally he had gone too far. When it became public, everything would implode, and it is truly what would bring this man down.
At this point, as I mentioned, Keith just wanted to expand more women, more slaves, the way he called them. And he thought he had almighty powers. However, this isn't just the 90s anymore. We are actually in year 2017 when this is happening and just more women are being pulled in. And here is where we're gonna have the trickle-down effect. Because if Mark's wife Bonnie hadn't left, and because of that people hadn't seen Mark as somebody that they could trust, Keith probably would not have gone to prison, and the cult wouldn't have been exposed. So what happens in 2017 is Mark's wife Bonnie leaves. And she left because she had seen the unhealthy behavior in Allison and the young women around her. It's also possible Bonnie was approached for DOS, but this was never revealed and she didn't testify in court. On top of the behavior, Allison told Bonnie that she'd make a lifetime vow of devotion to Keith. Shortly after that, Mark would learn about DOS from a young woman that he'd enrolled in ESP because she finally felt safe enough to talk to him. Mark, upon learning roughly about DOS, and remember at this point they're branding women, goes to Sarah, because he had now known Sarah since the cruise, since he actually got her into Nexium, and he's like, well, if anybody's going to give me any details on a secret society or whatever, it'll be somebody that is here and that I know. And he just blatantly asks her, what about brand? Like, have you been branded? What is this that I'm hearing? And Sarah says yes. But remember, Sarah had never got the seduction assignment. So as far as she knows, Keith was not involved in any way, because during that assignment, Keith would reveal his involvement, once the women would be in vulnerable position. So Mark actually asked Keith about it, and he said he'd look into it and denied his involvement. However, Mark isn't a fool. He didn't believe him. And this is when he decides to leave Nexi. During this time, Sarah also starts opening up to a woman that had also already left Nexium and shows her the picture of her brand. And the woman with, you know, the fresh eyes, with somebody who doesn't have a clue of what this should stand for, turns that picture of Sarah's tattoo around. She clearly sees this is not a picture of sky, mountains, or a river. It's actually Keith and Allison's initials. So KR and AM are branded down low in Sarah's pubic region. And like with every other slave, this was not in the first line. She didn't choose this and did not consent to it. Cult expert Rick Ross would say that he'd been in Axiom's crosshairs for years, but even he couldn't imagine Keith would go as far as turning his members into slaves and branding them. As you can imagine, and the vow actually does a really good job of portraying what life outside of Nexium or just even trying to leave is like. So Bonnie's out now, she's getting harassed, she's getting all the documentation from like the lawyers. You know, like basically NDAs again, like you will not speak of us uh, in a negative light. She's getting followed. Then Mark is out, her husband, and again, like they are, from what I have gotten at this time, they're not even living together. It just seems like both of them are just trying to protect themselves in the best way possible. Mark then learns of Sarah's branding. Sarah learns what the actual branding means, and all of them are now out and actually 
meeting up and trying to think about like what they can actually do. Like what they can do to get these women out. Can anything really legally be done against this? Bonnie would be the one with an idea. Why don't they have an ally in Catherine Oxenberg, in India's mom? So on May the 23rd, 2017, Bonnie would meet with Catherine to talk to her about India. And this is when Catherine would, for the first time, learn about everything. The obsession with calories, weight, the unhealthy behavior that she has seen. And then she learns about the branding. When Catherine would learn... When Catherine found out about the sex slavery and the brand, she decides to go public. Catherine said she reached out to any journalist, any news contact that she had. She appeared on as many talk shows and in magazine articles, publicly talking about how Nexium was a cult, and she was trying to save her daughter. She spoke with the cult expert Rick Ross, who told her small cults are most likely to end in suicide because how obedient and isolated the people under their masters were. In the sequence of events here, I feel like what actually prevailed, what was the straw that broke the camel's back for Catherine, was actually meeting up with her daughter. Because as you remember, they can move, they can go, they can do whatever. Like, yes, they're kind of made to feel turned against their families, but they still have the access to social media, they still can call them, they still can text them at any time. So this was sort of an intervention meeting after Catherine actually spoke to Sarah, and she would meet up with India. And Catherine says, like, I immediately fucked up, and, like, after speaking with her, I have asked her, has she been branded? And I have just said, like, oh, you have been brainwashed, which just backfired and have made India closer to the cult and made her cut her mom completely off. And this is when the mom starts calling the contacts in the police department, FBI, any agency, but they just asked, is she over 18? And she did nothing. So she had to resort to the only option that she saw available, which was go to the news. Go to any talk shows that would have her just try to spread the word. And this is where Katrin says something that is so important and truly was... As I have mentioned, the tools that these women started using in order to turn it around. And that was that publicity was her protection. Like, actually, being in the public eye was what protected her from Keith's people, from anybody that Keith might actually send her way. As all of this is going on on the outside, India is actually a witness at Alison's wedding. And it is said that Alison married another woman called Nikki, and that this was done for Nikki to stay in the country. It was all orchestrated by Keith. So Ellie is just getting even more enmeshed in this cult. Never a sign that she wanted to leave or help any of these women out. Now, Catherine, on the outside, now super desperate, gets in contact with somebody whose blog was already publicly online. And this person is one of the most underrated characters in this story. He's called Frank Parlato. And he was the man who actually previously did PR for Keith and for Nexium. But he found inconsistencies in the accounting books, and then he had a falling out with a group. They had gone after him legally for years, just like with anyone else that tried to leave. So Frank did what Catherine did later, which was to go publicly against him in order to protect himself. 
He had a blog called The Frank Report, where he had published online many articles over the years about the group being a cult and their hold on their members. The blog is still online from what I have seen, by the way, if you want to check it out. Catherine told him about the sex slavery, the collateral, and the brand which he then published in his blog. And that was what changed everything. The New York Times read his blog, and then they contacted Sarah to publish the story about the actual brand, because they finally had somebody on the outside who had actually had the brand on her. On October the 17th, 2017, the New York Times ran an article about the sex cult and the branding. Sarah Edmondson revealed that Lauren had brought her into this cult, where she'd have to give damaging collateral and was ultimately branded. Catherine was also featured in this article talking about how India had been initiated into DOS. Two months after the article, the Department of Justice finally started an investigation into the group. Frank said DOS members started contacting him, telling him their experiences, and he would publish those too. So now we have Frank working with other DOS members that are contacting him, leaking information. We have Catherine meeting with every law enforcement person in the country with the goal to get their evidence to present to the FBI. We have Mark, Bonnie, and Sarah reaching to everybody in Axiom that they could, warning them with their findings and asking if they could share their experiences as well. An estimated 18,000 people enrolled in ESP classes and many stayed in the group. While these articles were running, there was a lot of press and some former members, like Mark, Sarah and Bonnie, were very afraid at this time. Their real story behind the group was out there, but Keith hadn't been arrested. So we have that happening on the outside, right? And then inside of the cult, of course, they're doing their own crisis management thing, because this is New York Times that published the story. And they made people like India go online on their social media, especially Facebook, and write a statement. And this is truly, if you read this statement, I'll put it on the screen, it's one of those things where you just realize the power of coercion that this man had had. India would say, I'm absolutely fine, great, actually, I would never put myself or the people I love into any danger. She also then attaches, from what you can see, the official article about executive success programs and what they're all about. Then you have Claire Bronfman that paid for India to be evaluated to say that she was fine. And also, in the background, as in, like, what's happening in the cult, it's just different EMs on EMs, trying to break people down emotionally and just distance them even further from the outside world that they now perceive as threat above everything else. This brings us to November 2017. People on the outside have learned that Keith hadn't been seen in Clifton Park for quite some time. At this point, federal prosecutor Moira Penza from the Department of Justice was on the case, and she said there was a real fear that Keith is going to flee the country. He had unlimited funds, access to an island in Fiji because of the Bronfman backing. Keith left Albany for Mexico, where, as we know, they have had some Nexium centers, including the one run by Emiliano Salinas, who is the son of a former Mexican president. While many would leave Clifton Park, India would go to stay with Alison Mack in her New York City townhouse. And this would become crucial for the case. So, at this time, 
Kifis in Mexico, right? This is one of the most bizarre parts of the story. At the time, Lauren, Elisa, Nikki, and other first-line slaves had gone to stay with Keith in Mexico. India and many others were still in DOS, even after the reports had gone public, and they still believed in Vanguard and what they had signed up for. Lauren would later testify in court that the first-line slaves had been asked to come to Mexico for a recommitment ceremony, which she eventually would learn was to be a group sex act. All of them were to perform oral sex on Keith. On the stand, Lauren said she was told about it prior to the trip by Danielle Padilla and told to get over her issues about it ahead of time. She would state this was not something she was comfortable participating in and she thought of Keith as her husband. She did not feel the need to perform this act with others to show her devotion. ESP teaches if you have an issue, it's your problem and you should get an EM with another coach or someone in your DOS group to resolve it. This was never resolved, and the ceremony did not take place. And this is because a warrant was put out for Keith's arrest. However, because of the commitment these women have had to this man at this point, some of them were already there, were on their way to Mexico for the recommitment ceremony. One of them being Nikki, if I'm not mistaken, is Ellie's wife, and she stupidly posts on Instagram in front of a landmark in Puerta Vallarta. And this is how they finally knew where Keith was. On Valentine's Day 2018, Mexican Federales came to the Puerta Vallarta where Keith was staying in order to arrest him. After they entered the residence, they found a locked bedroom door and demanded his surrender. Lauren would testify that she and Keith had been taking a nap when the police arrived. She was terrified that they were going to shoot through the bedroom door, which they busted open. They placed her on the ground under arrest, and Keith, in the meantime, was hiding in the closet. They found him and arrested him. The Mexican government had agreed to deport him, and he was then taken into custody at the Texas border. There was a press release that day by the FBI stating Keith Ranieri displayed a disgusting abuse of power in his efforts to denigrate and manipulate women he considered his sex slaves. His co-conspirators would not be arrested here and they would return to the US and this is only when they would face justice. On April the 20th, 2018, Alison Mack was arrested for sex trafficking and forced labor. She was being accused by two unnamed women that Allison required them to participate in sexual activity with Keith, under the threat of releasing their collateral. Originally, she pled not guilty and was released to her parents' address on a $5 million bond. While Allison is dealing with these charges, her mom calls India and tells her to go and pack up Allison's New York apartment for storage. So, India is packing the apartment, doing what she's told to do, and she finds a couple of flash drives, which she put in her bag to give to Allison. However, then she goes home to her family, and one day she actually decides, out of curiosity, to look at what is on these flash drives. She would find several women's collateral, as well as video and audio recordings. When India was approached by the FBI, she fully cooperated. 
It actually ended up working with them for many hours, explaining ESP, DOS, and she shared the flash drives, helping them to identify the voices on them. This would be crucial for the investigation because those recording conversations revealed that Keith was, in fact, the creator of DOS. Made up the rules, the punishments, all of it. He had denied any connection to DOS because it was used to commit many crimes. They were all used against him in trial. If India had not found those recordings, the state had no other direct, non-circumstantial evidence to link him to it. So, April 21st, 2018, Nexia moved its operations from Albany to Brooklyn, and Claire Bronfman took control of the organizations. And things start moving fast from this point onwards. May the 24th, 2018, Keith pled not guilty to all charges. And his lawyer would say that everything was consensual. I'm gonna speak about his lawyer in a minute because I found some recording and I just... It's, it's slime all over again. It's just different kind of slime. It's the legal kind of slime. Hate it. Hate it. Absolutely cannot despise it. Despise it altogether. Keith did attempt to get released on bond. And the day that he was arrested, Claire Bronfman put a $10 million bond into trust for him. The judge would deny bail after the court pointed out that he had already run to Mexico. Then, May 30th, 2018, in an interview with the New York Times, Ellison would admit that the idea of the brand was hers. She said, I was like, you all, a tattoo, people get drunk and tattooed on their ankle, BFF or a tramp stamp. I have two tattoos and they mean nothing. Interestingly, Lauren and Claire were also interviewed for that article and they both still fully supported Keith. June 20th, Nexium suspended all of their operations. It's a good thing because many more arrests were coming. June the 24th, Claire, Nancy, Lauren and Kathy Russell, the bookkeeper for Nexium, were all arrested on racketeering and conspiracy charges. All of them pled not guilty, at least initially. Claire had to post a $100 million bond and was released on house arrest with an ankle monitor, and this is when the tide would finally change. Because as they're released on their bails that they have money to pay for, because they earned the money, because they were working under Keith and submitting all of the collateral and they had all the money in the freaking world, well, the tide had changed because suddenly all of these women, probably with legal counsel, realized it is in their best interest to say that they were guilty in order to get a lighter sentence and to actually turn against Keith and cooperate with the police in order for him to go down for this. So, in March of 2019, Nancy would plead guilty to federal racketeering charges. She said she tracked and monitored women, she hacked emails of Nexium critics, got passwords and usernames of people that they thought were leaking secrets. Then, March the 14th, just hours after Nancy's plea, the prosecutors also charged Keith with child pornography. Prosecutors accused Keith of coercing a child into sexual conduct to produce visual depictions of it and of possessing child pornography between 2005 and 2018. In April, Lauren would plead guilty to racketeering and racketeering conspiracy. In court, she admitted to keeping a personal slave locked in her room 
for two years. And this is one of those stories that they show in the vow. And again, this is just how the extent of people being coerced, because this person wasn't ever locked in that house, from my understanding, the slave that we're talking about here. They could leave at any point, but they just didn't because of the collateral, because of what they had over them. In April of 2019, Alison Mack pleads guilty to one count of racketeering and one count of conspiracy to commit it. The conspiracy to commit means she willingly and knowingly committed a crime. It was not unintentional. In April 2019, Claire would also plead guilty to conspiracy to conceal and harbor an undocumented immigrant and enabling credit card fraud. Apparently, she helped bring a woman into the country on a fake work visa to obtain that woman's labor for herself and the organization. And she helped Keith use a dead woman's credit card. As part of her plea deal, she agreed for forfeit of $6 million and would not appeal any sentence of 27 months or less. The bookkeeper, Kathy Russell, would also plead guilty and she would receive two years of probation and two hours of community service. And this is when Keith's trial would start, in May of 2019. He was the only one who continued to plead not guilty because he's still a freaking genius, remember? How does that work? It's the only person not knowing what the hell is going on under him in the organization. Seems legitimate. So, everyone else charged pled guilty to some extent and they all testified against him. Sarah Edmondson was not charged with anything. Mark was not charged either because he also testified against Keith. Lauren's testimony was very detailed and definitely harmful to the defense. All of them testified that they had been taken in by him. They all apologized and said that they all wanted to do good. They wanted to be better. The prosecution described Keith as a crime boss and a predator that preyed on young women. The prosecution was allowed to show two nude images of a girl at 15 that Keith had on his computer, that he had had a sexual relationship with, rather that he raped. The videos that Mark had recorded when he was in Axiom were played, the audio files from the flash drives that Indy accidentally found were played, proving not only that he was behind DOS, but the cruelty that he used was devised by him as well. They showed an email exchange, however, and this made such an impact in the WoW as well, and when it comes to just people's opinions shifting between Keith and Allison about India. That was just, just diabolical. I'll put it on the screen. I took screenshots from the wow. In this email, Allison is reaching out to Keith because she wasn't being paid for her work in Axiom, specifically in The Source, which was a class actors could sign up for that Allison taught. She was saying she hadn't been paid for a year. Claire couldn't release payment until he approved it, and that she was running low on money. She asked if there was anything she could do to expedite that payment. And he replied with a quote, yes, any thoughts on India? Which made it clear that Allison was getting paid to bring India to him. And she hadn't done it yet, so he wasn't paying her for her legitimate work. Also, on the flash drives were spreadsheets outlining DOS and how long it would take to recruit 100 members. This is a sideline, but it was this email exchange that finally consolidated in my mind just the opinion that I have had on Allison 
up until this point, you can kind of still see her as somebody brainwashed, coerced for over a decade, starved, influenced by Keith, and that still stands. I feel like she could still be coerced, she could still be so close to evil for so long, but she participated in the worst of it and never showed any indication that she wanted to get out. Not when others did, not when he was arrested, only when her own ass was on the line. And that's what I feel makes all the difference. Sarah and Bonnie were there from the beginning, Mark was there from the beginning, yet they still had shifted. They still managed to help bring him down, where she just never even attempted to. We have spoken a bit about the prosecution. As for Keith's defense, he was defended by a guy called Mark Agnifilo, who would um, have his whole argument about how Keith had a unique sex life, that everybody was okay with it and everything was consensual. Of course, this is why all of these videos from all of these compromising positions and pictures taken are displayed here, because it's all consensual. You would not believe some of the words that this man would use as his defense, so I'll try to play it, because I have found an interview that the YouTube channel has done with him. His lawyer would say that men out there are being branded every day. We just don't know about it. But when it comes to women being branded with consent, it's a big deal. It's actually sexist that the government views this in such a way. And we don't think anything of the fact that big, strong, athletic men brand themselves. Also, men join secret groups. The Masons are a secret group. There are scores of secret groups from Harvard and Yale and all these, you know, elevated educational institutions. But it's men, so we don't think anything of it. Women want to be in a secret group and want to be branded. And all of a sudden, we're very quick to say, oh, poor dears, they must be victims. Because no, no right-thinking, free-willed woman would ever want that for herself. And I think that's sexist. And I think the government is playing into a sexist agenda. You know, men do these things, we call them Marines. You know, women do these things, we call them victims. Poor Keel Ranieri, basically. Men do it, we call them Marines. When women do it, we call them victims. So, um... The trial was six weeks long. The jury deliberated for four hours before, on June the 19th, 2019, finding him guilty on all counts. And sentencing is going to come later. But during Keith's trial, Sarah's branding ceremony, where she's completely nude and held down on the table, was released on a television station in Mexico. Nobody actually knew how many women the doctor, Danielle Roberts, who was in the Nexium organization actually branded, but she would finally, on August the 20th, 2019, lose her medical license. There are some further details that came to light while people were waiting for the sentences here, one of them being that in January 2020, 80 people filed a lawsuit against Nexium for running a Ponzi scheme. Some of those people said that they were part of a human fright experiment. So apparently when Keith first started looking into ESP and how he can control most people, he forced 200 subjects 
usually young women, to watch the video clips while he recorded their heart rate, blood pressure, and most importantly, their facial expressions. And the videos were of four alive Mexican women being dismembered and beheaded with a machete, and one of a conscious male being forced to eat his own brain matter. This was between 2010 and 2017, and these were actual videos, the one with the beheaded women was from the Mexican cartel. There is still so much uncovered about his connection to Mexico, how he trafficked women, what sort of collateral he had over them for them to stay, and then the fright study. I personally don't know if he was involved in the actual murders of these women or just finding the footage and getting off on it. I assume it is just the letter, like, I don't know how he found the footage either, because the charges don't reflect the murder as well, the beheading itself. Mm -hmm. So, again, there's just a whole underlining issue. There's so much still unknown about Nexim that will probably come out eventually, either when these people come out and release books, if they do, some of them hopefully never fucking will, or in the interviews or when other people speak more about it. There's still so much that we don't know, and in particular about his connection to Mexico here. But now, when it comes to sentencing, in September of 2020, Claire Bronfman was sentenced to 81 months in prison, which is about seven years. She showed no remorse during her sentencing and said that she still supported Keith, which the judge took into account as the six years and seven months sentence. October 2020, Keith Ranieri is sentenced. And this is interesting because he was originally going to receive 54 years in prison, but then the victim statements were read. 25 victims of Keith's gave victim impact statements, talking about how he had damaged them for life. Some were women he had molested as very young girls, some were regular members of Nexium, and so many were former members of DOS. They talked about being made to move to Albany, the sexual assaults, and branding. Apparently, after their statements, Keith called them all liars, took no responsibility in hurting them at all. Then he maintained his innocence. Imagine how much he must have hated listening to women talking in court. It gives me so much freaking joy. And I don't think he's getting great time in prison, just all men. No women that he can control. Imagine him trying to boss somebody around. Oh my god, I, I hope he's getting slapped left, right, and center every single day. I truly don't wish upon violence for anybody. Okay, from here, you know what? You know, just, just choose violence. If, if somebody can, if I can pass a psychic message onto somebody, fucking deserves it. Well, the fact that he'd heard all of those moving statements from women, some that he had known for years, felt no remorse, didn't sit well with the judge. He sentenced him to the highest he could under law and gave him 120 years. While waiting for sentencing, Keith asked to go to a different prison than the one he was headed to. He said he believed there's a gang, a Mexican gang, that will hurt or kill him, and considering that this gang is extremely vicious, and he violated many Mexican women, he could be right. I don't know how he plans to escape all the Mexicans in prisons. I don't think he realizes prison system doesn't revolve around Keith Ranieri. I hope truly that he's just uh, struggling like a piece of shit in there. 
On June the 30th, 2021, Allison was sentenced to three years in prison. She would finally express some regret over here in the letter that was filed with the court. She said, I'm sorry to those of you that I brought into Nexium. I'm sorry I ever exposed you to the nefarious and emotionally abusive schemes of a twisted man. Her release date, according to the Department of Justice, is December the 15th, 2023. In July of 2021, Lauren was sentenced to five years of probation and 300 hours of community service. She spent several years on house arrest and she testified about a lot of inner workings of DOS at Keith's trial, so she was key for the prosecution, hence why the sentence. In September 2021, Nancy was sentenced to 42 months, so about three and a half years in prison. <laughs> She's the co-founder. Her lawyers describe her as someone who was fooled, controlled, humiliated, and ultimately led to engage in criminal conduct by an egotistical, self-important sex fiend. The judge gave her one more month than the prosecutors recommended. So where does this case stand now? The latest here came from May this year, 2022, when the judge would hear both Claire Bronfman and Keith Ranieri's appeals. So, they again appealed on technicalities. Let me tell you what Keith appealed on. It's such a piece of fucking work. Defense would say that they were cut off, didn't get to complete the questioning of the witness, and this was because each side had an allotted amount of time and they failed to identify what questions they would have asked. In the appeal, you need to outline what line of questioning you weren't allowed to pursue, and this appeal didn't. This was related to Lauren's questioning, because after repeated questions that the judge wasn't allowing, he told the defense that they were done with the witness. Technically, the defense agreed, but said they would appeal it. The appeals were also on the basis of them disagreeing with the definition of commercial sex act, and they also objected to pictures of aborted fetuses shown feti... I can't anymore. Being shown because Keith made many young women get abortions, so the judge ruled the prosecution could show those pictures just to show how vile of a human he is. However, Keith had another appeal that he attempted to file by himself. And this was filed by an attorney later, and this one is so long and just a mess. So Jeannie attached it to me, and on the surface, it just looks like the prosecutors might have edited the timestamps on the images of children to make their age younger. However, we don't know still the outcome of this appeal. We don't know if these pictures have actually been altered. Both Claire and Keith's appeals are pending decision. I have checked this at the time of the recording. I think I'm recording this 20th of October. I still haven't found any updates on that, and we still don't know if their sentences will be changed. To wrap this story up, the cult expert that is named in many of these sources and is also in the video footage, Rick Ross, believes that Keith's biggest mistake and what got him caught was his refusal to give up India Oxenberg. Her mother, a TV symbol and royalty, went on so many TV shows, talk shows, and just saturated the news with her belief that India was in danger, in a cult and being sex trafficked. She said in many documentaries and her book that doing this was agonizing, because she knew her daughter couldn't end up hating her, but she was trying to save her life. 
If she hadn't been so visible and gone to Frank Parlato, it's entirely possible they wouldn't have gone down. She gave credibility to the story. Without that, you've got ex-cult members standing on their own. She tried for two years to get India out. By emailing and calling, her and her mother went to see India. They tried everything. He could have just told her, India, your mom is making too much noise. You need to leave. Go home. But Keith was a narcissistic egomaniac and refused to lose. During the time that Catherine and her husband did the 16-day intensive course in Albany, Catherine was around Keith. He wanted to record a video with her that he would use for recruiting. She refused. She said he gave her the creeps. Catherine just thought he was slimy, but she didn't dislike ESP at the time. The other cult expert I mentioned, Dr. Lalich, said she believed that was a lot of Keith's motivation in having India, because no woman was going to say no to him. In the search for constant validation and approval from the women, Keith realized he couldn't have Catherine, so he took India. And with that, he signed his own life sentence. And that is the story of Nexium, of its women, and how they took Kiefer Neary down. Some crucial points in terms of what, in my personal opinion, helped take this cult down. His ego and the crucial mistakes that he had made because of that ego. The recordings, the desire for this cult to always be bigger would be the most crucial points. Like, if Mark hadn't recorded everything, we wouldn't have shit. We would be just basing this off of hearsay, witness statements. And I don't know if that would have been enough to actually secure this kind of sentence. But he had to have it. He had to have compromising footage. He had to have collaterals. He had to have everything on tape. Since the early days, as we have learned, since his first MLM. And then they need to constantly expand to have as many members, as many women, everybody working under each other. Had it not been for those two mistakes on his end and for, like, other people once they actually left using that against him, I'm not sure how this story would have ended. And that, to me, is just wild. Because to think that this is a modern-day cult, all of these people technically had their own lives outside of it. They were fully controlled and had the program to stick to, but they could still be online, they could still reach out to people, and this is still the level of coercion that they have had. It's just... It's just wild to me that this is this can happen this close to 2022. This was all exposed 2017. How much longer could it have actually gone for? So, my question to people is, what do you feel the future of Nexium is beyond the prison sentences? Once some of these people are out, some of them already are, in my opinion, again, I see book deals, I see probably TV appearances, and, honestly, possibly acting roles. Tom Cruise is still acting. He's very well-known. It's very well-known that he is in Scientology. Still acting. Who is to say Alison Mack is not to serve her sentence and be actually even more inclined to get roles based off of this kind of publicity? Because any publicity is good publicity, right? I don't know. I find it so twisted. If that actually happens, if they actually get book deals, actually manage to profit out of it, 
it's just sickening. It is just sickening. And what do you feel about Alison Mack and the rest of the people that actually worked um, under Keith, that were abused, that were coerced, all of these women that were under him? And so many details, like what kind of information do you believe will be exposed eventually? Because I feel like there's still so much to do with Mexico, with cartels, with um, trafficking women for any sorts, like through work visas, through anything, to the US for his own sick purposes that are yet to be exposed. So let me know all of that in the comments. I am absolutely exhausted, shattered. This video is going to be four hours long. I can't. This is the most sickening freaking story that has to be told. And Jeannie did such a good job. Thank you, Jeannie. She's going to be working on other cult stories because I don't like researching cults because this is how they make me feel. Like, going through the story on branding was the most horrendous thing when I even read it out loud. It's just horrible. Just reading it is horrible. Imagine living through it. That topic aside, I will be taking a week off of research and everything, and then I'll be with you. So next video, approx, two weeks time, okay? Give me a break. Give me a break, because it's Scorpio season, and your homegirl is a Scorp. 29th of October, okay? I will be in Amsterdam, getting absolutely fucked. So, do the same. If you have made it till here, if you have actually sat with me through this whole story, take a shot. 29th. Take a shot in my name, be like, happy 30th, Maya, you old, old bitch. You have not figured your life out yet, but you might one day. Take a shot for me in my name or get absolutely smashed. I don't know, I'm not condoning any illegitimate, illegal behavior. Take a shot, take a shot. party for the first and only time in my life. That made serious. How many times could you think you should turn 30? What is this? Is this like Harry Potter world and like immortality and shit? Even they don't turn 30. They'll just continue aging. Oh my god. I am out. I am absolutely just out. The mind has gone places. So, uh, my out. I shall be seeing you when I'm turn 30. Recording my first video in my old age. So dramatic. I just have a fainting college position. I won't because I'm actually have sweat this disgusting case. I'm not gonna faint for you to see my sweat marks. It's so charming. And I will continue being charming for you in the new year. New birth year for me. You get it, you get it. Take a shot, take a shot, take a shot, my out. Bye. Bye.